0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner.
1: On this episode, we're joined by Sam Yam, co-founder and CTO of Patreon. In 2013, Sam teamed up with his college roommate, Jack Conte, to create a platform that connects content creators with members who provide recurring revenue. Seven years later, Patreon has funded more than 100,000 musicians, artists, and other creatives to the tune of $1 billion. Here's Sam.
0: Tech is getting an increasingly bad rap, uh, sometimes with like regards to its influence on society. And I think it's already well, sort of widely understood that uh, startups are uh, difficult in their own right to do. Uh, they can be really stressful, uh, they can be, um, just requiring a lot of effort. Uh, The the thought was to go through my personal experiences and uh, think through what makes it worth it to go through the process um, and uh, how you get through uh, the mentality of of doing startups uh, in this sort of environment, which is how I landed on the the sort of title that everything is worse than you think. And I figured a great place to start is just sort of uh, uh, a run through of uh, my own life uh, in sort of highly curated Instagram story fashion um, uh, through my experiences this past holiday uh, in Bali. So here we go. Okay, cool. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, It seems like I might be, you know, hashtag living my best life. Um, But uh, the the reality of of this whole trip actually um, was that I I was I was quite miserable. Uh, And and you know, in this time and age, it's not surprising that like what you see on Instagram stories isn't represented necessarily of of reality. Um, And and maybe we're just filling out a bunch of fake news everywhere. But like the the, the truth of what I was experiencing through this trip was uh, very early on, I ended up with food poisoning and then uh, right after that, I, when I was chasing waterfalls, as you saw, I got uh, a cut when I slipped on some rocks and then I got infected. And I don't know if it was related to that, but like right afterwards, um, I got like severely ill with either some flu or virus or, or disease and it just put me out the rest of the trip. Um, and so... Uh, it turns out, my, my most memorable sort of experience through this whole trip was, was none of these clips. Um, and, and this is seared in my mind, actually, this, this experience. It was actually when, uh, early on, uh, I was on a car ride trip, which was about two hours, um, back to the, the villa where the, the group of us were staying. and. Um, I remember I was already not feeling well at the beginning of this trip, so all day I'd been drinking mainly like uh, these, these tropical jungle juices and, and tonics. And then uh, about 10 minutes into this journey, I just, I, I just threw up everything in my stomach uh, right in front of me in the car. And I, like, I so distinctly remember in between the heaves, uh, I was just crying. Um, and I had uh, my friend beside me and, and the driver, and we just, we had to all get back to this destination still two hours away, because that's where we all were. And um, I just remember sitting there in, in the pool my own vomit, questioning my life decisions, and just realizing that we still had to go the rest of the way uh, through this two hours. And that, that was how I kicked off my trip to Bali. And I, I just remember through the rest of my journey, I was just, just as I mentioned before, miserable. Um, uh, There's a lot of mosquitoes in Bali, that, that's fine, you know, it's like nature. Uh, when I got uh, uh, inf- the infection, I wasn't sure whether it was because after I got cut in the waterfall, there was like a, a local lady who cut my band-aid with this personal scythe that she just happened to have uh, at hand. Um, or whether it was like the, the dirty waterfall water. Um, but I never figured that out, it didn't really matter uh, to top it all off. Uh, I, I got to, um, just sort of freak out over this uh, rat I discovered in my room, um, that, here, I just wanted to show this. Oh, Excuse me. Oh, he's coming. He's coming for me. No, he's running back, but he can't escape. How did he get in here? Oh, because he can't escape, because there's no, where's he going to go? I've cornered him and he knows it. Oh, God. Um, okay. So, I'm just deliriously talking to myself, uh, <coughs> really... Obviously not in control of the situation. And why am I sharing all this? Um, so the, the point of, of all these experiences is it, it turns out um, that's sort of what startups are like. It's like sitting in a, a pool of your own vomit as you're like dying of an infection and then uh, being trapped in a room of like insects and rats. So um, that's why uh, the, the way I wanted to sort of uh, start off this talk was uh, just uh, giving you a a quick sense of of my perspective of things, and then maybe uh, where I can actually begin is just a sort of whirlwind tour of my own background. Um, So yeah, I was born in Iowa City. Uh, uh, My parents uh, were immigrants from Hong Kong, um, and so that's me and my sister. Uh, I was born there, but I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I remember, actually, much of my childhood was centered around... uh, I did a lot of studies in piano uh, at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, I actually... uh, My college essay was about uh, how, as a child, I was really curious and stuck my hand in the door hinge, and my mom just slammed it. So I actually... She chopped off the tip of my uh, middle finger, and, like, you know, there's a, a set of images where I was just in, like, a full hand cast Um, as a child. But then my my essay was about how I, I, you know, persevered through that, Um, ended up studying a lot of piano, and then uh, before I graduated high school, actually performed at Carnegie Hall over in New York. And that was really exciting to me, except what I realized afterwards is that in order to have a a career in something that you're passionate about in in the arts, you either have to be the best at it, Um, at least this was, you know, in my mind at the time, uh, or otherwise there, there weren't really too many paths um, to success there, and so instead I decided that the much more rational approach was to uh, study computer science, um, join startups, and then uh, end up building a company uh, where then other artists and creators could then find a, a means to build out a career around their passion and their craft. Um, but I'm jumping a little bit ahead. Uh, I wanna go back. On campus, uh, I actually uh, the thing I remember having a lot of fun with was I actually delivered In-N-Out burgers. And so this was before DoorDash and all the stuff. I don't know what you folks use nowadays. Um, but uh, this is an article from 2006 in the Stanford Daily, which, which sort of dates me. But uh, basically talking about how I created a website, uh, people on campus were ordering uh, In-N-Out burgers, and then I would come through in my Honda and just hand deliver uh, burgers. So, it, you know, a lot of hustle. Um, (coughs) After I graduated, I worked at two startups that you probably haven't heard of. Uh, One was called Ning, the other called Looped. Um, You may have heard of the the people that started these companies. Um, uh, uh, Mark Andreessen started Ning. He now runs, of course, the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz and he was also founder of Netscape. And then Looped, um, at the time, Sam Altman had dropped out of Stanford. Um, He later went on to run Y Combinator and now he's currently running OpenAI. And so as a quick aside, uh, one of the things I've certainly found out about Silicon Valley is that the network is, is quite small and you end up uh, running into um, the, the same people over and over again um, in the industry. And uh, because of that, it's really important to sort of foster great relationships. I mean, A, because it's just a good human thing to do, but then also because uh, you never really know like, where everyone's going to go in their career and, and what they're going to develop. Um, Going back to uh, the case of of Mark and Sam, uh, Mark ended up writing my recommendation um, for the co-term program over here at Stanford, so that was really helpful. And then Sam Sam has been really instrumental in my career, um, both as an investor in companies I've done, but then also um, in helping me out get a role in Y Combinator when he was running it. So um, I I think it's just really important to to care deeply about the community around you and and the people that both you can help support and then uh, they can help support you. Um, Okay, then I started a company you definitely haven't heard about, uh, called (coughs) Adworld, still recovering from the Bali stuff, Um, and uh, that was acquired by a company uh, called AdMob, and then they in turn were acquired by uh, Google, Um, so I went through that whole process, uh, came back afterwards to uh, here at Stanford, uh, and the Stardex, great program run by great people actually, Um, and uh, still being run now. Uh, where I was an entrepreneur in residence, uh, worked on a few companies here, (coughs) and then reconnected with my, uh, as we noted earlier, my uh, freshman year roommate, Jack, um, started the company Patreon. Patreon, uh, I imagine a lot of folks not familiar with us, uh, is actually quite a cool company. Um, This is Amanda Palmer, she's a sort of kick-ass musician. Um, We help sort of uh, creatives, artists, uh, get direct funding and financing from their community and so uh, These artists can ultimately build a career uh, focus on what they're passionate about and in return the community gets access to the artists they get to uh, develop uh, a connection with a sense of intimacy or they get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content and, and learn more about the artist. Okay, I want to get back to the the original topic um, so uh, the way I think about talks is, is primarily through stories. And so uh, I, I went through my whole past experiences and uh, I, I realized that like the struggles and hardships I went through sort of centered around um, <coughs> these three themes. And, uh, and that's really what I'm gonna talk about today. Um, and uh, either they were personally experienced or, or something I witnessed. And uh, so the structure is, I'm going to talk about the three themes of hardships that, uh, you know, I've gone through, and then uh, sort of on a broader level, uh, talk about some thoughts on maybe how you can approach and and deal with them when uh, you go through these yourself. Okay, so um, nobody cares about your problem. This actually, I think, is surprising to most people. Like, in some sense, I think uh, people expect that they have to sell, and uh, there's a lot of uh, common knowledge out there around how you want to find your first users, be really passionate about your problem. But uh, it turns out even if, at least, um, this is what I've experienced uh, across a few startups, even if you have strong conviction, the early users always seem to, um, they always seem to, to uh, at the point of closing, not maybe initial discussions, uh, not come on board. Um, and I found this out sort of over and over again. Uh, The example with Adworld initially was that uh, we had what we believed was a really compelling solution to a problem uh, about mobile ads at that time uh, where you couldn't uh, change out to different mobile ad networks uh, without submitting a whole new app into the App Store. And so for us, we realized that we were making, we were using this in our own apps um, and we were making thousands more dollars in advertising revenue and we figured other companies would be making tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands more. And it just seemed like a no-brainer. And so we actually went through the entire like App Store rankings list, contacted all the developers, and we didn't get a single reply back um, in email. And uh, it just looked like, despite it being obvious that you would make more money, nobody really cared. Um, same thing happened with Patreon, surprisingly, too. So. Uh, Jack had a great network of uh, artists and creators that he knew and then we collectively put together a list of, of maybe like a hundred folks um, that we felt uh, could really benefit from sort of launching with us and um, and that we would line up some press and uh, they could sort of ride that as they were launching out with their audience. And so we went through that list, contacted all these different YouTubers, uh, creators, and uh, also, nobody launched with us. And so uh, I remember like one of the emails that, that Jack ended up showing me um, <coughs> was uh, from one of sort of the aggregators who was like, also pitching this idea to, to folks. And uh, you know, the, the language that, that this person used was, "Can't say that the interest level is sky-high. We'll keep pushing." Um, and up nothing came out of it. And so when we launched Patreon, um, it was just Jack, his roommate at the time, and then his now wife, uh, Natalie. And that, that's all we had. That was the only people that were willing to give us uh, a shot on this. Um, and uh, obviously, I, I think things worked out. Um, but uh, uh, and, and I'll address some of that later. But I think it's very common um, that until you can actually show an example of success and drive those initial users, uh, people aren't very interested. In the case of Adworld, it wasn't until uh, we started sort of publishing some of our own numbers about how much money we were making uh, onto external news sources that people found that we had some legitimacy. Okay. Uh, I find this to be an interesting problem too, uh, that your plan just ends up being wrong all the time. And um, the, the example I use from Patreon is that we were really sure that the, the way that would make us unique um, as a platform is that we would uh, allow artists, because we believe that new influencers nowadays weren't sort of locked into this uh, album release cycle, and so they would release content whenever it made sense for them. So we were convinced and had really strong conviction that uh, what needed to exist on this platform is the ability to only charge when you released. A new song a new album a new piece of art and so that was the, the the crux of like our value proposition with patreon and it turns out like you know after we launched even though that's how we launched uh, artists cared much more about a stable revenue stream um, where uh, they would have consistent money come in every month and so they could actually think about uh, planning for their finances and a career which makes a lot of sense um but this sort of situation, I find, yeah, eventually we had like 95% of artists just doing sort of a monthly payment plan instead of uh, per song or per work. Um, and, and I found in just talking to a lot of different folks that uh, this seems to always happen too. So, uh, I was back in, I don't know what this was, 2010, I guess, uh, <coughs> working at this incubator called Dogpatch Labs. And uh, this was the same incubator where, across the table, uh, both Kevin Sisham, who I think is going to be doing the last talk um, in this series, uh, uh, was uh, working and building out Instagram, but actually, at the time, uh, still using all the Bourbon branding and stuff, because that was the first company that they uh, had been working on. And so uh, I remember I was like curious about all the other groups working, working around me, so I got set up on Instagram with Mike. Um, Uh, Kevin's co-founder and then uh, I asked Kevin like what 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 do you I'm curious you know what what's your plan what are you uh, uh, thinking about with with this company and (coughs) at the time um, and uh, this was I think as they were pivoting out of bourbon uh, what he described was a Instagram is just going to be easier to use than all the other photo services. But their, their strategy was that it would be the first pillar as part of a lifestyle uh, suite of apps um, that could encompass different things. And so uh, you know, this one was about sharing uh, images of your life. They could have a location-oriented one down the road. And it turns out that Instagram was compelling enough where none of that other uh, planning had to materialize at all for them. And then uh, they went on from there. Um, same thing happened with a uh, uh, well similar thing um, where uh, early on um, I was uh, I had met uh, Ben Silverman, who is the founder of Pinterest um, and we were doing a few strategy sessions because this was before he, he had launched Pinterest um, on just things that we were building. We, we were both trying to come up with startup things at that time. Um, and the the original, Demo that he showed me uh, that prior to, to Pinterest was actually a mobile app that uh, allowed you to sort of group different fashion together and then eventually like purchase um, different clothes and things like that. Uh, and so uh, Ben Ben is an amazing strategic thinker based based on the experience of, of uh, my conversations with him in the past. But uh, the point of all this is like I think you just get going. Um, you. If you allow every single time that you're proven wrong on uh, the the planning that you have laid out, uh, you're almost guaranteed to to run into this. And so uh, if you can develop the mentality that that it's uh, not a big deal and that you have conviction on some core principle of what you're working on, um, it's OK for your plan to be absolutely wrong. It also helps in these cases that uh, I think the folks found success afterwards. But even in the case where um, you have to pivot or do something different, I think just being comfortable with the fact that more likely than not you can't anticipate like the mentality of groups of people uh is 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 what everyone ends up facing uh, regardless of how successful they are down the road okay um this one is is more personal to me uh, and um i think it has a lot to do uh and maybe folks here share this mentality with uh both like a desire to optimize the things that you do with your life and then, <clears throat> also, this idea that you want to be questioning all the time if you're uh, making the right choices and uh, have the things that you've done been working out. Um, and so, uh, for me in particular, because I, I do a lot of questioning about everything that uh, I, I face with continuously, um, I find myself oftentimes in this uh, maybe like toxic cycle of thinking through the choices that should have been and and, uh, in the worst case, getting to regret about it. And so um, just highlighting a few examples of this in my own life. Um, Early on in Adworlds, uh, that was the first company I founded, uh, Life, we got an offer from this company named Quattro Wireless. Um, And so uh, both me and my co-founder were really young at the time, we didn't know what to to make of all this. And I remember when we asked Our investors for sort of advice they they gave us some uh, opinion that basically led us to going okay we're not gonna um, do this acquisition and uh, then afterwards uh, we saw quickly that uh, Apple acquired Quattro and then Apple appreciated itself and the deal ended up valuing us around 150 million but we never we never took that and that was uh, that was at that time, myself being like 25 years old, uh, something that I really uh, was fixated on for a really long time, as in like how could I have made a better decision here or how could I have had a better thought process around this. Um, And then uh, it sort of happened again. I don't know if you folks have heard of this company uh, named Fab, but um, uh, on the next company when I was working at uh, Stardex that I started, uh, this is sort of silly, but, this uh, Fab was also interested in acquiring us, and so I remember reaching out to, to a few folks and, and asking for advice here again, and especially in the context of what happened before, um, thinking that maybe we uh, wanted to go through this sort of acquisition, but then uh, ultimately decided not to, and then um, shortly afterwards, uh, we sort of couldn't escape the news. Um, where uh, it just seemed like fab was, was taking off. Um, and, and the reason they were interested in us is because we had helped them set up with group buying through our platform at that time. But uh, yeah, like our, my co-founders and I were just sort of sitting there, um, not freaking out, but just thinking that we were bad at making choices. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, um, <clears throat> I also remember like seeing all these articles because this happened very shortly uh, after we stopped working on that original platform and then I'd reconnected with Jack and we had launched Patreon at this time and uh, looking at also whether it made sense to, uh, to, to go back and possibly talk to Fab uh, early on because we weren't getting a lot of traction um, in terms of people being interested in, in Patreon at, at the beginning. Um, and it, uh, it was doubly true because the day that uh, Jack came to me, and this I have that date marked because uh, the day that Jack came to me, I was also working on another uh, idea for like freelance photography. And <coughs> and the TechCrunch article for that had just come out. So when I originally had met Jack, uh, we met at uh, this place called Coffee Bar in San Francisco. Uh, I thought we were just going to talk about an idea that he had um, so that I could give him some advice. And I remember... He, he came to me at Coffee Bar and he's like, okay, Sam, I don't know what the process is for this. Do we, I have to get a couple of like, non-disclosures and uh, can, we, can we sign a few documents so that you don't steal my idea? And I remember telling Jack, um, look, ideas don't matter at all. Like, you can tell me, you can not. It doesn't, doesn't really matter to me. Um, I'm happy to offer my thoughts if you wanna share about what you're doing, uh, but otherwise, you know, it's great to catch up. Uh, it's very cool seeing you uh, on YouTube these days. And uh, he, he ended up sharing me the idea around how he thought all his artists and, and friends um, had huge influence but weren't making money at all on YouTube. And then the, the immediate next thing I, I told him was, Jack, don't tell anyone else this idea. I'm going to start working on this now. Uh, and, and I began coding that night. Um, and uh, it, I, I was just, I, both of us were just convinced that there was something here. Um, and it was a personal sort of problem both for Jack obviously as an artist and creator, but then also for myself just uh, um, having gone through my own experiences. And fortunately for us, uh, fab totally just fell and, and sank, so I didn't regret it later on. Okay, um, uh, so uh, how, how do you think about um, uh, approaching these problems when uh, you're, you're dealing with them. And, um, you know, I, I have this mentality, uh, that, uh, I'm sort of going to indulge myself here, but Jack made a video, my co-founder, um, about Patreon a a few years ago. And, um, it's, it's, uh, a little bit, uh, it's a little bit gross, but, uh, it also, I think is like highlights the point, um, that I'm trying to. There's a
1: thing that creators do when you get obsessed, um, with a thing and you just keep grinding on it and you work so hard and you don't sleep and you just kill yourself to turn a vision into a reality. And Sam is my co-founder. This video isn't supposed to be about him, but every time I think about that first year of Patreon, it becomes about Sam because Sam would code in bed. And he would like fall asleep for an hour and then he'd wake up and then he'd keep coding and then he'd fall asleep and he'd wake up and he'd keep coding. He was the only engineer and we were servicing, you know, thousands and thousands of accounts and only Sam in his room was just disgusting because he just he was around the clock working so hard. Um, Look at this fucking mess on his desk. It's unbelievable. He would I mean, he hates when I show these photos, but I just have to because it's this this is the these photos are the embodiment of what it means to take a thing in your head and to make it real and put it in the world. It's creation. It's the making of a thing. It's the turning of a something into a reality. I'm so grateful to Sam. He has a work ethic unlike anyone else I know. This is my favorite photo Sam. This is how I remember Sam the first, honestly, I get emotional looking at this photo and thinking about this. It, um, he gave himself fully to Patreon, to, to our mission, to what we're doing, and, uh, Okay, so before I totally turn on the waterworks on camera here.
0: I... Okay, so uh, the the thing obviously, aside from finding, a, a, you know, it helps to find a co-founder where you both love each other dearly, um, is uh, I want to justify what, what's actually going on here. So it it looks like a carton of eggs, which it is, but it's not because I was like eating eggs on my desk, because there's obviously no place to cook them. So I I think I was using it sort of poorly as like the overfilled trash, and uh, it, it, it didn't, it just, it didn't work out. Um, but uh, the, the point more here that, that I'm trying to make um, is to find the thing uh, that you can be obsessive about to the point, and, and this, this is obviously the wrong, like this is unhealthy, but like to the point where the other things Uh, Get phased out in your mind, and they don't matter right Um, and so when you're dealing with things like regretting other decisions that you made or uh, That your plan isn't working out or that just nobody cares about what you're doing um, If you yourself are convicted and you feel that you care deeply about your problem And it's the only thing you can focus on then uh, uh, Also your personal hygiene, but but beyond that like you can get through Most of the issues, which doesn't guarantee success, but at least you know that you're working on something that you uh, that you feel is worthy of your time, and so uh, I I find that this notion of like phasing everything out and just being like laser focused on the thing that you care about is is actually quite uh, uh, sort of uh, almost ubiquitous. Uh, Like there's uh, this language is used. Uh, Very consistently among uh, other successful companies so like Patrick Collison of Stripe has this tweet where he describes um, creating Stripe required obsessive intensity and then he notes that um, maybe better founders could have worked you know smarter um, instead of harder but but at least for Stripe they just had to work that hard and I like Paul Graham who started Y Combinator's response to this too that effectively, the, the implication is that in every case, startups just require an, uh, an immense amount of intensity. Um, he describes it as the way Patrick, what he means that by better founders is that it's, it's an empty set of folks um, and that just everyone is going to need to work that hard. Um, <clears throat> and I actually found the, the best example, uh, or at least the, the example that resonated the most with me here um, came up during uh, a discussion with um, a friend of mine on, on this uh, Bali trip too and uh, it had to do with um, uh, this friend of mine worked at a, uh, a hedge fund called uh, Bridgewater Associates and um, it's, it's the number one largest hedge fund in the world but it's also uh, really famous for the founder Ray Dalio who has this book called Principles just instilling this Uh, uniquely intense culture which most likely isn't for every company but (coughs) um, a few tenants of of that culture are primarily around this notion of uh, extreme transparency and candidness um, in feedback to to improve everyone within the organization and so uh, meetings where you have like three people discuss uh, a topic are recorded broadcast out to the rest of the organization and then in real time people provide feedback um, and criticize you on points that you make. And so uh, you you get to see this sort of matrix of feedback continuously on your performance at at all times within this organization. And so uh, uh, the founder Ray Dalio Uh, is uh, he he condensed a lot of these principles and then wrote out this book uh, which became like a number one New York Times bestseller a few years ago but the the story that my friend shared uh, when he was working at Bridgewater Associates uh, came from from recently where um, he was noting that uh, Ray Dalio was uh, in a meeting room and he was uh, he was really upset that uh, the whiteboard happened to be, in his mind, a few inches positioned uh, too low. And uh, it became such a, a systematic failure of how this decision was made in the organization that he started asking around <coughs> and just driving up and seeing how this decision was made. And, and the understanding was actually, eventually, through this process, a group of folks were, were actually let go from the organization. And um, it we debated this uh me and my friend for a bit uh, to say like what is this a good thing to like be focused on something ultimately and maybe both our minds was was quite trivial um, and uh uh like and also why right like Ray Dalio is uh he's seventy years old he's many times over like a, a billionaire like just just chill out and go relax and enjoy the rest of your life. Why be so fixated on uh, this, just, this meaningless point? Um, and beyond that, too, uh, uh, my friend was telling me how uh, he would read every single like new associate's papers in the company, and uh, if it was not up to par, he would chew that person out in front of the, the whole company and, and organization. And so... Um, we debated this for a little while, and uh, where we landed on that, I think at least this this concept connected with me uh, for why why this matters at all to Ray still, given where he is in life, um, is that in his mind, like Bridgewater Associates is is his like Picasso, and if you're pedantic, you're saying, well, Picasso is the person, and uh, it's actually the art piece, and so good for you. But um, where we landed on was that. Uh, the reason why Ray cares so much is this is his life's work and uh, he's going to be fixated on every single point that matters for him in an obsessive manner um, until until he's done. And so uh, that, that resonated with me and it's, it's something that I think, the, the way that was articulated by my, my friend in, in explaining why, uh, he's so fixated in, in all these details, even to the level where uh, it, it oftentimes may be considered micromanagement, which is actually a bad form of management. But like, how are we all gonna be searching for like, our own sense of, of what uh, we'd want to pursue, maybe for the rest of our lives, right? If we could, if we're gonna go do something and, and found a company. Um, and I thought about this more, and uh, I guess I'm gonna conclude with um, just a, a few stories for me personally, um, it's about, you know, if, if Ray can be so obsessed about a hedge fund, like certainly anyone out there can find something based on like a cause that you care about or, uh, or a betterment of, of humanity that you could really be passionate about. And for me, it's always like the stories that are impacting uh, people that I find uh, uh, most moving. And so... Um, Yeah, I went through and, and, uh, like, these are some of the things that have happened with with creators on on Patreon that I personally followed. And so this is a group called (coughs) Kind of Funny. Um, They actually were a group that spun out of, uh, I'm a gamer, and so uh, I I read this site called IGN. and So that's where they were originally, but they all quit and decided to just continue talking about, um, you know, stories and and games as a group together, uh, just out of their home. And so initially, like, they were putting their stuff on YouTube and they were getting maybe 15,000 to 100,000 views per video, which uh, you know people have an impression of nowadays when, when you find YouTube influencers, um, that that's not a big number. But they ended up launching a Patreon page um, to ask for sort of support on their endeavor. Um, and then very quickly, uh, they were generating 30,000 a month on, <coughs> on the videos they were making. And they were like, well, this is cool, but we also really care about gaming. And so they set up a second page that soon uh, exceeded... Um, the 30,000 they were making there. And uh, they effectively then had two pages and they were making tens of thousands of dollars a month. And so that allowed them to move out of that uh, sort of home studio, set up a a, a proper studio, get, uh, upgrade their equipment, um, have an actual uh, backdrop and professional setting, um, (coughs) hire other folks to help them on their, um, on the content that they're making and then ultimately really just grow out their business. And I thought that was so cool, watching this group uh, jump out, because they cared deeply about the work they were doing um, from IGN, where I followed them originally, and be able to rebuild back up uh, their company. So I thought that was awesome. Okay, another group that uh, actually, it's a single individual, a guy named Brandon Stanton. Uh, if you ever seen some of these images, are humans of New York. And I love what Brandon sort of does because uh, He just takes images of people uh, originally in New York and then sort of just like writes out their story, right? Like one one snippet of it. And I think it builds a lot of empathy and uh, you just get to uh, uh, develop a lot of perspective about uh, other people's lives. This, and and I think it it touches on a lot of things that are highly relevant and problems that people are dealing with in times of age. This one uh, resonated with me in particular. Uh, It's about anxiety. Um, And so this individual talks about uh, how he almost like bullied this girl in high school who always talked about anxiety because it looked like nothing to him. Um, But then, you know, recently when when his father died, he's been dealing with his personal anxiety and realized that it wasn't, anxiety to him was not about nothing, it's the indescribable fear of nothing is the way he talks about it. Um, And uh, Humans of New York just does all these different stories that I think uh, in pieces sort of helps like shine a light into different parts of humanity and, and brings us closer together. When they finally launched their um, Patreon page, there was just an outpouring of support um, and people talking about how uh, sharing, you know, uh, their personal stories brought so much encouragement to them um, and then also how, um, you know, actual causes like a, a woman being able to send her children to school uh, were sort of achieved through the stories that were shared by Brandon. And so I thought that was awesome. And then finally, one of the uh, I find uh, Simone Gertz uh, is is another YouTuber. Um, She makes this channel called Shitty Robots. Uh, I'll do a quick like thirty seconds here. My
1: name is Simone, and I always struggle with introducing what I do because it's a little bit it's gnarly. But I'm an inventor and YouTuber. My my videos are shitty robots. Hopefully they're fun. I mean, it's like it's some sort of robot comedy. Sometimes I just take a step out of outside of everything, and I'm like, "This is really bizarre that I built useless machines and have somehow turned this into a job and into a career." Uh, but I do like thinking, like when I pay for a coffee, I'm like, "Shitty robots paid for that."
0: <laughs> so Simona's is, is awesome, right? She did, uh, recently did like the thing where she converted uh, Tesla into a truck before the actual Tesla truck. Uh, She's been on Colbert, done a TED Talk, worked with uh, Mythbusters, um, Adam Savage on on many things. And uh, last year, she had a um, uh, recurrence of uh, a brain tumor. And so, uh, in particular, she shared a video um, at that time um, when it came back uh, where she described... Um, despite all the uncertainties and and the difficulty she was facing in uh, sort of her own life in going through this, the the two stable certainties in her life were both her community of patrons and her mother. Um, And uh, as she sort of shared this particular example um, and this video, uh, a lot of folks just sort of had like an outpouring of support. And um, just sort of seeing this Uh, I think both empathy from people and, like, a community uh, sort of focusing their their love and energy to individuals and uh, the internet sort of enabling this to happen with communities today. Um, I think despite, like, whatever other hardships and struggles that, um, you know, Patreon goes through and and will continue to go through, uh, it's very motivating for both the team and and myself uh, to keep focusing on this. And so, again, my... My call for everyone uh, who cares about doing startups and uh, uh, finding what uh, it is that they are passionate about is to, to find your Picasso, or again, if you're pedantic, uh, your, uh, yeah, your, uh, your actual art piece. That's it. <laughs> Two questions, okay. Thanks for taking the
1: time to come here. Hey.
0: The question is about the future of picture. how do you have a strategy to exit, or something like this? Yeah, um, I think we've had a lot of discussions about um, the exit per se too, because uh, what's been important for us is that in order to serve creators, we want to be able to remain independent in our decision making. And so we've been really strategic both in the partners and investors that we brought on for how we raise our money and also into uh, whether we would sell the company to, to we'll sell Patreon to another company. Um, in particular, we look at like the actions of some of these largest companies and, and we feel like uh, it's it's difficult to trust that uh, in the future, they wouldn't change the trajectory or, or how we operate. So the plan for us has always been to try to figure out a path to IPO. Yeah, and um, the the way that we get there uh, uh, has been working deeply with investors that looking at comparable metrics and just figuring out uh, what we need to do in order to make it there. Yeah, one more.
1: So like your last piece of advice
0: was kind of like to find your Picasso. Um, in general, like like you know there are always so many different fields that like you're exploring, you might be learning. Um, you know, for example, you were like playing piano um, as a child uh, before you went into like computer science. Um, I guess I'm just interested in hearing your insight on like um, in terms of like navigating so many different fields and just really keeping your mind open and learning as much as possible how do you go about finding that one that ends up being that like passion, or, like, uh, so, you know, over time, especially if you're like starting at a younger age. Yeah, you know, no, uh, uh, right, uh, how can I repeat that question? Um, basically, uh, what I heard was um, there are a lot of different paths that you can take and, and things that you can be passionate about and uh, how do you sort of figure out uh, the, the path and maybe the focus that you want to take uh, as you go through life. And, so i think one important distinction here i, I want to call out is that uh i'm not being prescriptive in, in order to dis- like describe how to be successful i actually think there's a lot of luck involved um, at least through personal experience on like what actually will work out and it's also hard to predict um, what i am trying to describe is like what will make it worth it for you to, to work on the problems Um, and, and that's what I mean by like finding something you deeply care about. There have been a lot of endeavors that I've worked on that have gone nowhere. Um, and, uh, you look at some of these other founders too, and and where they started, looks very different from where they finished. And so, uh, the thing that will kill you for certain is if you, uh, just end up hitting a wall and you, you don't want to do it anymore, which is also fine, I think as a choice, but like, uh ultimately, if uh, you're going to be exerting this much effort on something that has a a high likelihood of of not working out, uh, I think the only way you get through it is if you have deep conviction and you're passionate about it. And so then directly to your question, like as you're exploring lots of different branches and and whatnot, what I found is it it doesn't really matter like where your journey takes you. Uh, I've always found it uh, interesting to obsess down like deeply into one path at a time and if something else takes me to to broaden out my experience or my knowledge, then then I'll follow it. But I always find it more interesting to just learn as much as I can about a particular field as I'm working on it. All right, thanks everyone. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.